the Office of Personnel Management still has a lot of rebuilding to do. My next guest points out it went eight years without a confirmed director, and the Trump administration tried to roll its functions into the White House and to the GSA. Here to put some recent OPM testimony into context, American University professor Bob Tobias. And, of course, you're a longtime observer of OPM, and you heard Karen Ahuja's testimony recently before not such a friendly committee in the House. It was not a friendly committee, but, you know, I think there was some silver lining in it, Tom. I think that it gave her an opportunity to engage Congress and the the greater public, people who pay attention to OPM and its relationship with Congress, an opportunity to describe a new way forward for OPM in light of its recent instability and, of course, historical underfunding. I mean, I think one has to keep in mind that the prior president, created four years of OPM instability and anxiety in seeking to eliminate OPM. You know, first he wanted to move the policymaking process, which really is the protector of merit principles, to OMB, which is traditionally a highly politicized agency. Second, he proposed to move the balance to GSA. And third, he put forward Schedule F, which enacted would have allowed several thousands of GS-15, 14, and 13 career federal employees to be made political appointees and then dismissed at will. So there was a lot going on over those four years. And it's important to point out that none of it happened. OPM wasn't disbanded, nor was Schedule F implemented. But what did happen was in a long, long period of uncertainty and paralyzing anxiety. Will I or won't I have a job? Will I or won't I be able to continue my life's work, preserving the merit principles? You know, career employees had to keep their head down and under the radar so they wouldn't be noticed and hoped OPM would not be disbanded, and it wasn't. All right, now we're three years past all of that now into the Biden administration, which is a supporter of OPM. But it's also fair to say OPM had its own issues over the decades. They never really got their operational wing, which is to take care of the annuity figuring. That's still a long, paperwork-intensive, kind of outdated process. They also had trouble getting rules implemented. It would take them, you know, like when phased retirement came in, it took them about two and a half years to initiate that rule. And the security clearance process came to them and got pulled back again to be more efficient. So they've got some internal work also, I think it's fair to say. Oh, yes, indeed. And the committee focused on that employee retirement processing issue. And Ahuja pointed out, and I think with some pride, that the processing period, while she's been a director of OPM, has decreased from 95 to 65 days, which is a significant drop. And that's without any additional new IT. The 2023 budget provides money and the 2024 budget hopefully will provide money. And it's important to keep in mind that when any agency is doing IT work, it takes them a year to write the kind of specifications that they need and another year to implement. So if Congress doesn't provide needed funding in the second year, all the first year money will be wasted. So I think she's on the right path. I think she made the right point, and hopefully Congress will hear. But the committee also correctly pointed out a billion dollars in FEHB money was distributed improperly. So there were a lot of 
kids in fed families who <laughs> enrolled, they were the proper age, but then aged out of the program. I think it's 26 now and still continue to get benefits. We're speaking with Bob Tobias. He's a professor in the key executive leadership program at American University. Yeah. So there's issues you're pointing out. Basically, they have operational issues and also the issue of their own employees and the uncertainty that was brought about by that long period of instability. But then there's also OPM service to the greater federal employee community with respect to merit principles and some of these processing topics. Right. So, you know, I think OPM is certainly now on the path of protecting the merit principles. It's on the path of fixing the FEHB issue. And the committee also pointed out the need for hiring reform and more specifically, hiring reform with respect to cybersecurity. And as she was getting started to explain what she was doing, the committee said, well, maybe if you weren't so focused on diversity, equity, and inclusion and accessibility, you'd be able to hire quicker and faster. And she quickly dismissed that account saying that the private sector is focusing on that. The federal government needs to be focusing on that. And when the federal government fully embraces these principles, you have better policy being made. And outside of the cybersecurity people and so on, in general hiring for federal agencies, which still takes a long time, I think OPM has tried to counsel agencies for a long time that there are more than 100 different hiring flexibilities that have been in place for a long time. And they're telling agencies often, use them and you can get people in quicker without going around merit systems and competition. That's correct, Tom. And they've focused on cybersecurity. And, you know, Congress gave OPM the authority to create new pay scales and hire faster. And I believe that they're ramping up to make that happen. So what's the prospect then? If you were the director of OPM now and you are seeing some money come in for IT and for some of these modernization initiatives that they need to do, let's presume maybe she's got a year left and, you know, four years on that job is, I think, as long as anybody's ever had under an administration, regardless of whether that administration continues. So what should she be doing now in the year, year and a half left? I think that she's got to fix the retirement problem. She's got to fix FEHB. Those are sort of the table stakes of credibility of a human resource operation. Can you get the appearance of the simple things solved so that you can get on to the difficult policy questions? Because you know, a classification system that was created in 1949 that's totally outdated is a huge issue. Inability to attract Gen Z into the federal workplace is a huge issue. And the inability of those hired to keep them on the rolls is also a huge problem. So she doesn't lack new issues over the balance of her time in the job to fix really substantive issues that have been plaguing OPM in the federal workforce for years. Bob Tobias is a professor in the key executive leadership program at American University. As always, thanks so much. Thank you, Tom. And we'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. 
David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did. As a matter of fact, as I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full-time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in, and she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. That, to me, is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, It had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, What I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters, who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were illiterate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I 
really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, We have institutions that want to define themselves based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations. But you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And, you know, I flirted with a couple of them. And I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me. I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released, and that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sisulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbored no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness toward the society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story, and it 
you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to to go as far as you have, and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way. That's sort of I, the I way that I kind of see all of that. You that's know? brilliant. <laughs> And um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about traveling, getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.